You're listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Today's guest is from New York City, and that reminds me that I want to tell you about an upcoming event, the PBI Annual Dinner, which will be in New York City, you see the connection, on Thursday night, September 28th at the amazing Gotham Hall. It's an earlier date than in years past, so mark your calendar now and plan on joining us. More information can be found on our website, probonoinst.org, or call Kelly Simon at 202-729-6691. Today, we're talking to Bill Belitsky from Paul Hastings. Bill personifies the adage that pro bono isn't just for litigators. He maintains a busy corporate practice, and we discussed his career, the firm's pro bono program, and some pro bono matters that have been particularly meaningful to him. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Bill. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Irina, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to share some of my experience uh, with the program today. Great. Well, let's jump right in. To get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Uh, sure. Um, I I am actually a, uh, a foreign national born in, uh, I was born in Kiev, Ukraine, and uh, my family came over here when I was very little, so I'm a, I'm a Russian speaker. And I uh, grew up in the metropolitan area and ended up going to NYU for undergrad uh, with an economics major and then ended up uh, working for uh, about three years in the brokerage industry. Uh, and then through that and through the combination of that experience and having endured sort of the uh, pre and post 9-11 sort of market fluctuations, I realized I wanted more of a stable environment to work in that also featured uh, the ability to have to, to tackle intellectual challenges. So I thought I thought approaching the markets from the regulatory side would be uh, a path that I would be interested in taking. So that brought me to uh, Fordham Law, uh, where I graduated in 2006, and ever since then I've been a uh, an attorney here at Paul Hastings. So. Other than markets, stability, and we could flesh out a little bit sort of the, the September 11 experience, were there other factors or reasons that you decided to become a lawyer? I think the, the, the experiences I had uh, in, in, in brokerage, sometimes the way, the way I like to think of it is this. Uh, sometimes you learn what you want to do by doing a bunch of things that you really didn't like. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, yep, the process of elimination, of course. <laughs> so so that, that was sort of my approach. And, and what's funny is that one of my best friends, uh, before I even thought about uh, applying for, to law school, he he'd taken the LSAT and uh, got into University of Chicago. And I just, for me, it was the most distant possible thing I could consider. It, it hadn't even crossed my mind once in my entire life and, and through college uh, to ever apply to law school. And, you know, I, I think, I think for me, uh, I was, I, I thought the brokerage industry was initially exciting. I quickly became disillusioned with sort of, uh, that the fact that really it's for the most part, it's a sales job, especially when you're not in a big place like Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley. 
so, you know, as, as someone who had a strong academic background, ending up in a sales job, um, where I, I did learn a lot about the markets as a byproduct of that experience, I really, I really wanted to pursue more of an intellectual challenge um, with a more stable environment and, you know, kind of seeing, you know, the routine sort of SEC and, and uh, NASD inquiry and annual audits and that kind of thing. It struck me as, you know, this is, this is a profession where whether I, I end up working for a regulator or, for, or on the legal side for a brokerage firm, that's kind of where I started seeing myself. So I hope that answers sort of your question. Oh, absolutely. And we'll, we'll continue on the career path for a second. But since you mentioned 9-11, and for people particularly who weren't in um, New York, Washington, Pennsylvania, uh, you know, direct um, geographic hits, how, how do you think... Being in New York, were you in New York? The brokerage firm I was working at was located in Union, New Jersey, and it's probably a 15-minute drive from the uh, Holland Tunnel. So how do you think that experience for you, your family, um, shaped you, (laughs) the you that you are now, if at all, in terms of your outlook, your personality, um, anything? Do you think it sort of had any type of lasting impact? I, th- I think so, and I th- the first the first thing that comes to mind in terms of you know any, any views I have now that maybe got reinforced is I, I find I find that I'm I'm more grateful for the things I have uh, in my everyday life and all the opportunities I've had along the way. Um, you know, I, I started. In 2006, when I started, um, I, I didn't summer here as an associate, so I kind of, and we can get to that, I, I was hired as the last, so first-year associate in the engineering class of 2006 for the firm, um, so there was a little bit of serendipity there in, in me ending up at Paul Hastings in the first place. So, you know, I, I, had this, I had this sense of gratitude of, you know, just being here, and I think that's really carried me through to a level of success uh, and productivity today. So, and, and in getting back to sort of the entering class of 2006, there were, there were some, there were some folks where I would say, you know, they were happy to be here, but at the same time, maybe they felt entitled in some ways, or maybe this is something they didn't have to do. Um, but I think, I think kind of being in a sort of a tough environment, um, you know, in a, in a small brokerage firm in, in New Jersey, and also that, you know, compounded with, with, with everything that was going on, the markets behaving that they were, uh, the drop in the markets from 9/11, as well as all the other emotional and political fallout, uh, it was it was a time where a lot of things were very uncertain. And then uh, to get to a place where I am now, where I have more certainty in my everyday life than I did uh, at other times, I definitely have a sense of gratitude for day to day things. I really think that attitude of gratitude translates really nicely into our discussion of pro bono as well. That comes up, you know, sort of quite a bit. So that's that's a fantastic point. So let's talk a little bit more about Paul Hastings. You, you mentioned a little bit about how you got there in 2006. Tell us a little bit more. Sure. Um, when I was interviewing in, uh, I'd say, 2004 and five, if that's correct, uh, 
I, I, I had the I had a few callbacks here and there at large firms like Paul Hastings, and I th- I was I was just kind of missing the cut each time. I, I thought I was, did well enough in the interviews, but wasn't getting the offer. So I ended up summering at a small firm on Park Avenue. Um, it didn't work out there. Uh, it was probably for the best. And just by continuing to network uh, through colleagues at, uh, at Fordham Law, um, I ended up with uh, I ended up having my resume passed along to the investment management practice partner here at Paul Hastings, and then three weeks later, I was hired. So it was certainly one of those things where it was right place, right time, uh, and I was hired actually right into the group as a first year, so I wasn't a typical sort of first-year corporate associate at a big law firm rotating through departments. I've been doing investment management work since day one. So tell us a little bit, for people who aren't super familiar with Paul Hastings, just give us the general overview of the firm and then of the pro bono program. Sure, I'd love to do that. So Paul Hastings, the way I think of it is it's a relatively young law firm among the, the M-Law 100. And I, th- I think in the top 50 law firms by any measure, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly the youngest. I think it was formed somewhere between 60 and 70 years ago. And I think uh, over the years, for most of its life, it's been a litigation, real estate, and employment law powerhouse. And over time, the corporate and other practices have uh, caught up. We have a global reach uh, and with offices in uh, Asia, Europe, South America, uh, lots of offices in, on the West Coast. We're an L.A.-based firm, uh, offices in uh, New York, Texas, Atlanta, uh, Chicago. So I think we have 20-plus offices now globally. And, you know, I, I, think, I think maybe as opposed to where we were 20 years ago, where maybe it was more litigation and employment and real estate focused, we have more of a balanced overall practice among departments these days. Well, one theme that I was extra excited to talk to you about before you get back to telling us about more of the pro bono program is given what we've already talked about in terms of your practice and being a corporate lawyer, I love that you help us demonstrate that pro bono isn't just for litigators. So I'll be excited to drill into that. But tell us a little bit more generally about the firm's pro bono program. I'd say a lot of this started before I even started here in 2006. But let's let's say sometime about eight or nine years ago, the firm really took a, a, a hard proactive look at Paul Hastings' pro bono and, and the kind of messaging and presence it, it, it wants to have there in the legal community. And so although pro bono was always sort of informally encouraged up until eight or nine years ago, uh, the firm decided to really, really uh, have, a, have a real directive in terms of pro bono and and uh, you know send 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 their clients and the rest of the legal community a message saying you know we're we're going to be among the pro bono leaders so through 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 deliberate action over that time period Paul Hastings has really kind of made itself a top five pro bono law firm uh, I would say likely through multiple measures, whether it's total pro bono, 
hours uh, accomplished, the percentage of attorneys reaching certain hours thresholds every year, that sort of thing. I think one of the reasons that the pro bono program has been successful is that early on, Paul Hastings distinguished itself by saying, at least to the associates uh, worldwide, that every every hour of pro bono also counts towards uh, the annual their annual billable hour budget, which is to say that if if you're doing 50 hours of pro bono, you don't have to choose between the pro bono and uh, a corporate transaction to meet your 2,000 hour bonus eligibility. So that really put uh, pro bono work more or less on equal footing with billable work. And that, that's, that sends a very powerful message to the associate ranks and really encourages pro bono and people to seek out their own projects to do the kind of pro bono that they want to do, uh, subject to you know any kind of obvious limitations. Let's talk a little bit about the program's governance structure, which I think is sure. unique among large law firms and successful. And it relies a lot on local leaders, local leaders like you. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about how the program's managed and how you became something called the Corporate Department Pro Bono Coordinator for the New York office. Uh, as a child, did you ever play tag? Yes, so you're it. <laughs> well, yeah, you play tag, you, you touch someone, and they're it, and you're not. You forgot to stay uh, home so that day, yeah. There, okay. there, was a, there was certainly more than a little bit of that. Um, so I, I, think, I think the way it worked out was, you know, I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that, you know, my role here, it's not purely altruistic, and I would say that on a larger scale, not every law firm's decision to have a pro bono program is never truly altruistic, right? It helps, it helps sort of round out the law firm as someone who's, uh, you know, making an impact on the community, wants to send the right message to their clients, all that, all, all those good things. You know, narrowing that to, to, my, to my case, I was certainly looking for opportunities to continue raising my profile here and make, and make other impacts on the law firm, on, on Paul Hastings. So, uh, I had I had become friendly with our our other New York pro bono coordinator here, Brian Moran, who's an experienced litigator, done a lot of domestic violence work. Uh, so and and he's also Brian Moran's also very he's been very instrumental on on helping Paul Hastings become a national presence in the pro bono arena. So I, I owe a lot of uh, a lot of my development in that area definitely to him. So getting back to the point. Um, he approached me a few years ago, uh, yeah, acknowledging that you know he he knows nothing about forming nonprofits, about about nonprofit governance work, and all things kind of relating to what we call corporate pro bono here. So he asked me if I would uh, step up and sort of be his counterpart on the corporate side of uh, the pro bono equation here in the New York office, and you know it was it was. Uh, it made a lot of sense to me. I thought about it. I knew it would be a lot of additional hours. I also knew those hours would be would reflect in my annual annual billable target. So I decided to to step up and do it. And uh, about two years later, I'm still doing it. 
So to, to pivot off what you were talking about, we talk a lot about the business case for pro bono, right? And that those, those were sort sure. of all the factors that you were laying out about how for-profit law firms <laughs> can, can sort mm-hmm. of value uh, pro bono on a lot of different levels. And I think your story really represents a case study um, in how pro bono can be a leadership track, right? And help you um, stand out and be of service to the firm and distinguish yourself. And so these are all things that I talk about a lot to a lot of different people in firms. And now I will hold up the Bill Belitsky model that it, <laughs> that it works and that people do it. So tell me a little bit more about your role and um, what you do as a, a coordinator. Sure. Uh, I, I Initially, I used the word coordinator, and now I like to think of myself as uh, coordinator and gatekeeper. Gatekeeper, right? great. Not yep. Gatekeeper, right? Because a, uh, a lot of attorneys, including partners, will simply, you know, haphazardly send an email or forward an email from a friend or a client saying, hey, let's do this, or, you know, how can we help, or how soon can we get this done? sort of assuming that it's going to get done, and I have to say, hold on, <laughs> is, is this something that we should ask associates to spend time doing? Is this building a skill set that we want to have, or are we bending over backwards and possibly putting ourselves at risk by, you know, seeking to engage in an area of law where we don't have a, a current ex- set of expertise or where we, even if we did build it, would we able, be able to leverage off of it in the future? So that's a long way of saying uh, when, when corporate matters come in, I'm also the guy that says no when I, when I need to. Um, and I think that helps kind of keep our, our pro bono practice, at least on the corporate side, uh, focused and allows us to have deeper knowledge and expertise in, in the matters that we do handle. So as, as in terms of the role, you know, that's the gatekeeper side of things. And coordinator, it's, uh, I, I wear a lot of different hats uh, when we talk about coordination. So it will be a combination of me seeking out matters and then staffing them. It will be shepherding those matters along uh, over, over the course of their life, making sure that those matters, are continue, are, those matters continue to be staffed notwithstanding attorney turnover, that kind of thing. Um, as, as substantive issues come up, I can be sort of the first point of contact and coordinate with tax, let's say, or maybe I can handle some of those myself, really, really serving as a safety net for, let's say, the 30 or 40 nonprofit formation or 501c3 matters that we're currently carrying in New York. Uh, also, you know, in, in terms of interfacing with our pro bono partners, you know, partners like VLA and um, uh, the New York City Housing Court and uh, City Bar Justice Center. Well, I just, we just started coordinating with them a month or two ago. It's also about maintaining relationships with, with our partners, su- such as you, and, uh, you know, making sure we can continue to explore opportunities to work together and, and provide interesting and, and rewarding projects for our attorney ranks here. So that is a lot of hats. <laughs> I, I, I sort of lost count, right? Gatekeeper, coordinator, risk manager, liaison, cheerleader, nag. <laughs> um, so, so many different roles. How do you balance a super busy corporate practice 
all of these bro bono hats you're wearing. I know you have a super busy home life. How, how do you do it all? <laughs> um, I, I've, I've learned to kind of just take it one, one email at a time. Um, it's, it's easy to get, it's, it's, it's easy to get overwhelmed, uh, with the day to day. And, uh, in fact, you know, I just had someone walk into my office 90 seconds ago with a markup of something. Uh, so it's, it's important to keep your eye on the ball and just do the thing you're doing at that moment. And so what, what I've learned it to do is this, when, when an inquiry comes in, whether it's email or phone call, I try to address it right away, whether it's, whether it's responding to it on point, if I could do it in five minutes or less, or saying I can get you an answer on this day, or delegating it all together. I try to do one of those three things right away. Because if I don't do one of those three things, it might never get done. Or I'll get, I'll get uh, red in the face three days later when, uh, when a partner asks, well, what happened with this? Right? So it's, uh, it's, it's certainly a challenge. Uh, I'm still a 2,000-hour biller in our investment management practice. Uh, so it's, it's, certainly, um, it's certainly a challenge. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's not. And uh, what, what I did find is that I needed some help. So I actually have had the firm approve a, uh, a paralegal to help me with some of the day-to-day type activities. Um, for example, opening new matters. Uh, this person can open new matters. They can run conflicts checks. They can help with templates of engagement letters. Uh, they can help coordinate and suggest uh, uh, p- folks for staffing new, of new matters. They can greet people when they come in to the firm as laterals and uh, give an overview of a pro bono program. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that I've kind of done automatically in my role, I've figured out that I can delegate some of those, some of those tasks without, and, and really focus more on the substantive issues. Like, like I said, the liaison, being a safety net, staffing, that kind of thing. Well, those are fantastic tips, both on the time management and email management and responsiveness front. And then I think something that comes up a lot in pro, ban- pro bono leadership and management, and that is delegation. Um, and that's not easy for people for a lot of reasons, but really uh, is something for people to think about in terms of how it leverages our time and our ability to multiply and be able to do more. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier that one of the great incentives that the firm is able to give its lawyers to do pro bono work is the way it treats pro bono hours, right? So people aren't disadvantaged by their pro bono right. time. The firm has really had amazing success, as, as you mentioned, about in, you know, increasing their, their pro bono performance. And one metric that the firm has gotten to be incredibly high, incredibly successful at is overall attorney participation. The rates are extremely high. You know, almost 98% of the firm's lawyers uh, in, in the U.S., I think, are participating in pro bono. And to me, I love firm participation rates because that speaks to the the strength of the firm's pro bono program, right? You don't have one or two people over here off to the side doing lots of pro bono, but it's it's spread. You know, it is really a core firm value and everyone's got skin in the game. What other incentives beyond hours credit do you think has worked? Either incentives or strategies to, to encourage lawyers, either at the firm or that you found in your office and in, in your department to really be... Uh, 
winners at getting people to get involved? So I'm not a bashful person. I'll, I'll tell you exactly how this works. So we, <laughs> we use a combination of the carrot and the stick. Um, and the, the, way, the way that works is, you know, everybody, as soon as they walk in the door, whether it's as a summer associate, a first-year associate, a lateral, uh, either myself or Brian, we make it a point to, in the first week or two, to do a face-to-face visit and ask them, hey, and tell them, hey, this is what we do here. You know, our, our firm culture provides for everyone globally to do at least 20 hours of pro bono each year. Uh, it's important for the firm, and we encourage you to find, to seek out projects that, you know, speak to you personally, right? So we're not people, we want to make, we want people to be invested in their own pro bono projects as well. You know, it's, it shouldn't just be, well, this is what the office is doing. You should do one of those things. That's great for most people, but some people, they, they really have their own initiative or maybe they have a best friend with a, with a nonprofit idea that they want to help. So uh, we, we make it pretty clear, to them, very clear to them early on that they should be seeking out uh, pro bono projects of their own or, or, do, or do what speaks to them personally. So, so that messaging certainly works. Um, a, a lot of people, they, they just want to do pro bono to begin with. Um, you know, we, uh, working at a big law firm, we're very well compensated relative to most of the legal market. So there, there is certainly, uh, among the majority, the, the need to, the, the feeling of the need to give back. So that, may, that certainly makes things easier. Um, and the, the problem really in terms of getting people here at Paul Hastings over that 20-hour-a-year line the problem really isn't desire amongst the, uh, the attorney ranks. The problem really more is uh, matching people with opportunities or just giving that, that, that little nudge and reminder that, hey, you know, that the 20-hour annual deadline is around the corner. Uh, so it's, it's really, the really challenge is about making those opportunities available or reminding them that they have to be doing it. And then there, there's always... Two or three attorneys who, you know, drag their feet will will help them find something, whether it's an amicus brief or, or a housing court visit that will help them uh, get over the line. So, you know, it's it's uh, early on in the fiscal year. It's more about sort of messaging and saying here's the opportunities. And then I would say in the last three months of every fiscal year, when we're trying to get as close to 100% participation as possible towards that 20-hour target. Hey, it's really about myself and Brian and all all the other, all our other Paul Hastings uh, office coordinators approaching people one by one, whether it's by phone call or an office visit, and saying, "Hey, you're currently at three hours. What are you working on right now? What are you interested in? Uh, is what you're working on right now something that can get you to 20 hours? Can we find other opportunities for you? What are you interested in?" So it's really an ongoing ongoing process and lots of communication, especially in the last three or four months of the year to make sure people are on track. Bill, could you share some examples of pro bono matters that have been particularly meaningful to you? That's a pretty easy one for me. Uh, so as someone who's from a family that left the for, former Soviet Union uh, for reasons of uh, religious persecution, uh, when I had the opportunity, let's say, I think, in 2009, 2008, and 2009, to work with uh, Bet Sedek, who, among other things, is an organization that uh, assists uh, Holocaust survivors secure um, ghetto 
German ghetto work pensions and other reparations. Uh, we helped them. Uh, I helped about a half a dozen different Russian-speaking folks uh, in, in, in seeking uh, German ghetto work pensions and, you know, with, with great results. So, you know, people in their 80s and 90s, um, it was a chance for them to at least get a tiny bit of redemption, for lack of a better word, and get, you know, some kind of monthly check from the German government uh, for their time spent in, uh, in the 1930s and 40s in, uh, in, in ghettos uh, around, uh, around Europe. That's amazing. And a lot of these people yeah. were only Russian-speaking, so that's, that was sort of the one time where, where my Russian-speaking ability actually helped me uh, to do any kind of legal work. That's great. Putting it all together, that's, that's a wonderful yeah. and inspiring example. And I can see why that jumped to the forefront of your mind to share. Thank you yeah. for that. So it's... It's May, soon to be June. It's summer associate season. What advice do you have for law students and lawyers who are just starting their careers? As someone who's now seen, uh, I guess, 10 rounds of first-year associates below me, um, I think it boils down to this. Uh, I think where people have gone a little bit sideways, so to speak, is when they really overthink their summer associate role. Really... The, the, you, as, as a summer associate, getting in the door, you've done 80% of what you need to do. The other 20% is the firm wants to see that you can listen, follow directions, and meet deadlines, right? You know, you're at, the, at that level, you're not, we're not asking you to uh, rewrite Dodd-Frank or, you know, make new law in the, thir- in the, in the, in the Second Circuit we're not asking you to make, you know, legal conc- uh, conclusions and assumptions that, that, you know, don't pertain to the current exercise. So I, I just see a lot of overthinking of what the role is. And, and, and I, think, I think related to that, most summer programs, including ours, uh, specifically ask the senior attorneys who are generating these summer assignments to create discrete, closed-universe assignments. And so that, that goes hand-in-hand hand with what I just said. If you have a discrete, closed-universe assignment, just do the assignment. Don't, don't try to make it more than it is. You're going to spin your wheels, waste time, and maybe even, even worse, show someone inadvertently that you can't listen and follow directions. That's great advice, and I think we could probably take that to heart at all stages of our career. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Very evergreen. So let's wind down with this. Um, Bill, who's your pro bono role model? Feel free to share more than one and why. Sure. Uh, so I, I think I alluded to this earlier, but certainly, certainly Brian Moran. He's been a mentor here to countless, countless associates, um, not only in the uh, pro bono context, but many litigators here. I haven't had the pleasure of working with him on a litigation matter, but I know, I know he's sort of everyone's uncle here among, amongst the associate ranks. So he uh, he just he he maintains a lot of great relationships out there in the pro bono world. Um, he knows a little bit about everything. Uh, he's you know when I go with him to these dinners and galas, people always always uh, say hello to him, uh, and you know he he just does a lot of impactful work and a lot of things with kind and with veterans and domestic violence. 
issues. So really, you know, all, all those things that is, as a corporate attorney and someone who really focuses on sort of 501c3 and nonprofit matters, watching him do all these great things with, you know, asylum and, and kids in need of defense and domestic violence, all these very sort of personal pro bono themes and matters, uh, I really, I've, the utmost respect and admiration for the things he does in the pro bono front. Wonderful. Well, thank you for telling us more about Brian, and thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much to Bill for making the time to be with us. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're listening on iTunes, please take a moment to leave a review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. To learn more about us, you can find us on the web at probonoinst.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.